Welcome to What in the World. My name is Andre, being joined by Ryan. Ryan, how are you doing today? It's Friday. Uh, how's the weather in DC? It's pretty nice. Uh, it's been uh, getting kind of cold in DC, and so I'm I'm having to bring out my uh, my coat. Um, it's quite better than Michigan, uh, where I'm originally from, but it's probably not as good as in, in sunny San Diego, Andre, and so I'm still a bit envious. It's not sunny at all. It's like 58 really? degrees, and it's cloudy and gloomy. Oh, it's like- so it's probably, I feel like it might be colder than it is in D.C. Wasn't it pretty warm in D.C. a few days ago? It was 70 ago? yesterday. I, I wore a t-shirt. Wow. In November. Jeez. <laughs> it was so cold. I was freezing. I also got my booster shot two days ago, so I was feeling the after effects of that. But I think I've mostly shaken those off right now. Well, that's good. Uh, I'm glad you're feeling okay, and I'm glad you got your booster shot. I am going to do that as soon as I as I can. Um, it's the rollout here in D.C. is... Uh, Probably not as quick as it is uh, in other parts of the country. Uh, but anyway, we've got a lot to cover in this week's What in the World, Andre. Where do you want to start? So I'm going to start with the Biden Xi Jinping uh, three-hour virtual summit that occurred earlier this week. So initially, President Biden and Chinese President Xi, uh, they had planned for an in-person meeting, but obviously with COVID and all of that stuff, they had to make it a virtual meeting. Uh, it was sort of interesting. If you saw the pictures from the, the virtual summit, uh, President Biden is with Blinken and Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, and some other key advisors in a pretty small room, I think the Roosevelt Room. Xi is on this maybe 40-inch TV uh, that very much looks like a TV that I'd have in my own home, uh, sort of, you know, streaming in. And, you know, they're talking and all of that. While on the Chinese side in China, uh, Xi and his people are in this massive hall. Biden's coming in this like huge screen. And it's just a sort of an interesting uh, visual dichotomy. But uh, I don't think there's been too many sort of statements released about this meeting. Uh, they did say that there is much room to cooperate on in terms of climate change and environmental policies, especially because it's the two largest countries, basically, the two most powerful countries. We saw some of the cooperation take place with COP26. But otherwise, the other thing that was mentioned was Taiwan. Uh, Xi said there'd be, quote, drastic measures taken if the Taiwanese uh, sort of independence forces, if they crossed, say, the red line. Uh, and remember, Ryan, Taiwan is really fast becoming this flashpoint in U.S.-China relations. Uh, China has become more and more assertive with its claims over Taiwan and so on. And there was recently news that U.S. military officials are on the ground in Taiwan training Taiwanese military. We're seeing strategic ambiguity come to an end, as President Biden said, hey, if something happens to Taiwan, we will defend Taiwan. But obviously, uh, it's still really up in the air as to how much the U.S. is going to press on that issue. Well, yeah, I mean, and Biden's had to walk back, uh, or at least his staff has walked back some of his statements a few times just because we do have this strategic ambiguity policy uh, as it pertains to Taiwan. And so while we do support Taiwan, we provide them with aid, we provide them with assistance, we provide them with training, uh, the actual coming out and saying we will defend Taiwan against a Chinese attack has not been the policy of the administration. It hasn't been the U.S. policy at all. Uh, and so this, um, it's very interesting to see how the Biden administration will walk this fine line uh, with, with Taiwan, because it's just one issue of the many issues. It's probably the greatest issue and the one in, in which that could drag uh, the, the region into some sort of conflict, a hot conflict, because uh, we've seen 
China's rhetoric is, I mean, is red hot. I mean, they are, they, they have, again, drawn a line in the sand on Taiwan saying that if you, it is, Taiwan is a part of China. If you go against that, you're violating our sovereignty. We won't, we won't stand for it. But they've also sent um, naval vessels in the Taiwan Strait. They've sent uh, bombers. They've, they've done a lot to kind of intimidate and demonstrate that they will do just about anything to maintain uh, this uh, basically uh, in, in rhetoric only this cohesion between the mainland and Taiwan. But anyway, they, they did have some substantive conversations about other areas of cooperation, such as climate change um, and, and economic cooperation as well. Of course, the two biggest world economies uh, need to have cooperation or else, I mean, the global economy could just fall apart. So it's nice that they did have some FaceTime, although it wasn't in person. Uh, it, it still was important. Literally FaceTime, <laughs> if they were using <laughs> Apple products. But yeah, I mean, as we know, China is really the biggest foreign policy, I think, uh, focus of the Biden administration. Even when he was talking about his infrastructure plan, he was sort of framing it in the uh, picture of sort of like Chinese infrastructure and that the U.S. needs to be on par uh, and sort of exceed China on this types of stuff. And I mean, China is just really the focus of it of it all, really, with foreign policy, again, the pivot towards Asia, we saw the tensions flare up under the Trump administration, flaring a bit down, sort of toning down a bit, but still pretty high. And uh, it's a great power competition at the end of the day. Yeah. So, Andre, I want to move to another story. Speaking of China, uh, this relates to China. Uh, apparently, there's this secret Chinese port project being constructed uh, in the UAE. And of course, the UAE is a very strong ally, a military partner of the United States. And so US officials told the Emirati government that this could not happen. This would kind of uh, cause a negative impact on the US uh, UAE relationship. And so construction has been halted on this port. Uh, it is the Khalifa port. And so the US intelligence agencies actually suspected this to be a military facility. Uh, at this port. And so the administration and senior members, including um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Middle East Coordinator Brett McGurk, uh, I believe were in the UAE trying to come to some sort of agreement over it. Uh, and uh, it's unclear as to what's going to happen with the actual port. But as I said, they have halted construction. And so I, I imagine that despite the economic benefit that the UAE could probably gain uh, from this port in Abu Dhabi, I imagine that they they will weigh the the benefit of of U.S. partnership and as, as particularly when it comes to us selling them weapons uh, and fighters, uh, probably that far outweighs the ben any economic benefit from a port. Yeah, I mean, we were just I think about to move forward with the F thirty five sale, these fighter jets uh, being sold to the UAE. But Ryan, is there like any sort of hard evidence that this port was? like supposedly going to be used as a military base or is it just like conjecture speculation by the US government it's it's intelligence so at the end of the day right there's there's nothing that's been provided um that i can see um but if the intelligence agencies say that there is a reason for concern that's usually because there is yeah uh, i i i have general faith that you know what their what their intimations are when it comes to this stuff are, are generally right it's likely because of the types of construction that are being Created, right? I mean, there's probably different requirements for military facilities as for civilian facilities. And I, I imagine that's a part of it. Uh, the type of personnel that are being used to build it will likely be an influencing factor. And so um, I, I'm not sure as to whether or not there is 
any evidence released. I haven't seen any, but uh, if the if the intelligence agencies say it, I, I would tend to believe it. Well, I, I mean, we always had to treat everything with caution and critical thinking, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, like I, I read a recent DOD report that said that China is thinking of doing a military port in Sri Lanka, uh, which many people had had concerns about with regards to that hump into the port. We've talked about right, that Sri Lanka miniseries I did. Uh, the fact that China has a 99 year lease on it raised some heads, uh, sparked some glances towards Sri Lanka because they were fearful that China would use it as a military port. All the Sri Lankan officials said, no, we're not going to allow it to be used as a military port. China has denied it. Obviously, I mean, whose word do you want to trust? But the DOD did say that Sri Lanka is the site, is a potential, potential site of a Chinese military port. It's something that China is considering. But again, you know, who knows, right? Who, who knows what they'll actually do? So, well, I mean, the, the difficulty is clandestine operations can be done without the host government knowing. Oh, yeah. And so sure. if, they're, if they're constructed in a way that allows for some military use, then, I mean, that it can be used for as a military function, whether or not the government knows. Yeah. It. So that's, I guess, the fundamental. And who has the control risk. over the port is the true you know, question. Like, I mean, does the UAE have control over the port or does China own the port? It, so I believe this is just a facility inside the port. So it's not China's port. Uh, it is the it's the Khalifa port that is uh, owned and operated uh, by the UAE government. Uh, but the actual there are air, this area of the port was being built and constructed by and utilized by the Chinese. OK, OK, interesting. I mean, I'm sure this situation will continue to develop. But Ryan, I sort of want to go to South Asia now, because uh, I think a few months ago over the summer and the spring, we had been talking about India quite a bit because there were these farmers protests that had been really taking over the country across all these different states in India because of these very controversial sort of farmers' bills that Narendra Modi's BJP government had basically passed. Uh, And now I believe Modi has just actually repealed the three farm laws that were really targeted towards the agricultural sector, these three farm laws that had caused all those protests. And Modi even actually apologized. He said, quote, today I beg the forgiveness of my countrymen and say with a pure heart and honest mind that perhaps there was some shortcoming. And he asked basically the protesters to go home. And he tried to, he basically announced this on Guru Nanak Jayanti, which is a Sikh holiday. Uh who and the Sikhs have been have very much been a big demographic represented in the protester populations. So it's sort of interesting, right? Because Modi has been quite really powerful in Indian politics. He's really dominated the Indian political landscape ever since he took power in 2014. He came in with a big landslide in 2014. He won a bigger landslide in 2019. And again, he's been controversial for his sort of Hindu nationalist ways. But uh, it's sort of interesting that he's retreating on this particular issue, which implies, you know, that his political capital has been spent quite a bit, that politically, you know, there are some risks in keeping this up, and that it's a bit of a risky time for him politically, even though he's still popular. There's been a lot of different things that have, you know, sort of made a dent in his power. For example, the COVID situation and so on. I think this is a, a good step for, for India's democracy just because, I mean, the, 
while the law was not you know undemocratic, the hard line that we've seen from Modi was concerning, particularly when you talk about this Hindu nationalism. Uh, and so this kind of concession, which is, again, built up, as you said, Andrew, because of COVID, because of some of this, this economic struggles related to COVID, uh, this shows that Modi will kind of stand down in certain issues. And while it is surprising that he did this, uh, I, very surprising. it's very surprising, but I, I think it, it is striking maybe hope in, in many who have kind of looked at India, or at least I've looked at India over the past few years and been concerned about the state of democracy in India. And so um, working with the people is always a good sign for me. Well, I, I don't know if it strike hope just because it's one issue out of a multitude of issues where there have been many controversial uh, things. I mean, we were, Ryan, we were at the Aspen Security Forum just a few weeks ago. Uh, Sarinan Doom, uh, a great scholar, I think, with uh, AEI who focuses on India and sort of foreign policy with regards to India, said that India is a flawed democracy. And he sort of illustrated many ways in which it was a flawed democracy. Yes, they have elections. Uh, yes, it's a democracy because they have elections, but there are many other things about the political culture, freedom of speech, freedom of expression that are being stifled uh, in that country. And uh, it goes way beyond the farmers' protests. I mean, it does. So, I mean, uh, I, I don't think one issue is enough to. Oh, no, no. That's make a, a snap and that's, judgment. I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that this yeah. is, you know, just a, a shining light of Indian democracy now, but I, it is important to note that. There's a difference between being a, a muscular leader and being a strongman. Modi's not a strongman per se. He's not a Putin. He's not a Xi Jinping. Um, but he may aspire to be, a, the, he might aspire to emulate the strongman style. But in exactly. But when you see concessions on issues such as this, like as you said, this was not foreseen. And so when he steps back and does this, that at least shows to me that he's, not maybe he is trying to be, but he's at least not in this instance demonstrating some of these strongman features. And so, um, I I don't know. I uh, he's got to win the elections. I mean, he's well, got exactly to win the that, elections. So. And, and again, my point exactly: like doing these types of things, working within the process, shows that there are flurries of democracy in a country that is flawed. And again, many democracies are flawed. India certainly is one of them. Uh, but when you have to work with the people who are protesting in your country, and a lot of them are. Uh, that shows that the process can work in some ways. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, well, let's talk about a country that is definitely not a democracy, Belarus, uh, who has a, certainly a strong man, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, who has been the president of Belarus since 1994, uh, quite a long time. Uh, and the reason I bring it up is because you have a, a mass migration, which is basically a, a constructed crisis by Lukashenko. Uh, and really, I mean, many analysts have pointed to Putin, uh, who has kind of, uh, you know, taken this issue and thrown it onto to Lukashenko to kind of then push on to the United, uh, so the European Union. But anyway, there are clashes at the border between Poland and Belarus. We see migrants, and these aren't really Belarusian migrants. These are Middle Eastern migrants, migrants from Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and even Cuba that are flying into Eastern Europe and trying to go through non-EU countries, such as Belarus, into the EU. Uh, and so basically, we've seen thousands of people going through the forests of Belarus, trying to get across the Polish border. Poland has basically shut down their border, building up fencing. Uh, Lithuania has also strengthened its borders. And so since early November, we've seen these migrants come. Belarus has encouraged uh, these migrants, according to the EU. And so they've flown 
to Minsk. And basically, the, the Lukashenko regime has been pushing them towards the border. And I guess the question is why? Why would they be doing this? Uh, I mean, it's you, you can never be certain, but Lukashenko has been under a lot of pressure at home and abroad since the fraudulent election in August of 2020. Uh, the opposition leader, uh, Svetlana Sikhanouskaya, has been in you know exile in Lithuania. She's been traveling the world, trying to fight for a free and fair and open Belarus. There have been sanctions by the West. Uh, and there's been this push from, from the West to have some sort of legitimization of Ms. Uh, Sikhanouskaya. And basically now what we see is <laughs> Lukashenko is basically saying, you know, sanctions relief and recognition, and this will all be over with. Uh, and so while that certainly benefits Lukashenko, this also benefits Russia, who is now sending advisors and special operations forces into Belarus to support. They are also are amassing troops on the Ukraine border. So there's a lot occurring in this region at, at the time. And so uh, very concerning for the EU, which is, I know for years has been undergoing a mass migration uh, in, uh, originally because of the, the Syrian civil war. And now again, because of essentially what it seems like a concocted crisis uh, due to misinformation uh, coming into the Middle East from likely Kremlin sources who are saying you can get to the EU through Belarus. So the European Union, they suggested that Lukashenko is sort of perhaps creating this crisis, is he? That, that is what they're suggesting. And I'm generally inclined. I see it very, I, I see it that being the way. I also see it essentially, I, I, I can't imagine Lukashenko would do this without Putin's, um, not necessarily approval, but blessing is probably a better way to characterize it. Just because, I mean, if he didn't have his support, uh, undertaking this and ostracizing yourself even more uh, from the EU could be very damaging, particularly because of the sanctions regime uh, and the and the, the stresses put under that. And so, uh, funny enough, it seems like they put a halt to um, natural resources going to Poland, saying it's you know routine maintenance. Um, again, weaponizing natural resources uh, is something we've seen. Particularly, it's out of the Kremlin's playbook. Whose side is Poland so, on in this whole game? Poland's, I mean, they're just an, an EU member state saying, we don't want you to be forcing migrants into our borders. Of course, there's a whole separate issue of Poland kind of moving away from the EU and saying, we're a bit more nationalist now. Their whole law and justice party in Poland has kind of taken this uh, right lean towards anti-EU sentiments. They're passing a Tucker Carlson test in Poland. They are. That's right? that's yeah. It, it's certainly the case. And so it's it's not unnatural that the even I mean EU countries. So Lithuania is concerned by this too, and they're very open to migration. Uh, but what they don't want to see is mass migration. And this again, this really isn't migration. It's not a migrant crisis. This is a an operation embarked on by. Belarus and likely Russia to push migrants as a, a way of it's a mechanism of warfare essentially to cause problems in in the European Union and that it's easy for them to say well look at the EU not being free and open pushing away migrants I mean again it's this is a nasty operation jeez it's uh, it seems like a political game and sort of like a chess game almost right geopolitically like that Lukashenko is playing. It's sort of like his revenge, right, for all of these sanctions that have been put on him. Absolutely. Yeah. No, again, Jeez. I think he wants concessions out of this. He wants some sort of deal where he will ensure that these migrants are sent back to where they came from 
And in return, sanctions relief and maybe some form of recognition. I can't imagine the recognition part holds, but I could see sanctions relief coming. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Ryan, I want to, before we run out of time, I want to sort of cover this great article that the New York Times had sort of put out there, uh, co-authored by Eric Schmidt. Uh, Basically, it covers a U.S. airstrike that had killed many civilians in 2019, basically during the last stand of ISIS, per se, in Syria. So, Basically, the New York Times had sort of put together all of these findings. There was this airstrike in Baghouz, Syria, uh, where the U.S. was basically going against ISIS. And the U.S. military basically dropped a 500-pound bomb and then two 2,000-pound bombs. Uh, Task Force 9, which is a secretive special operations unit, was basically sort of operating in Syria they're the ones who basically initiated the attack. Uh, and then Central Command, our Central Command, basically recently stated that 80 people were killed in the strike. However, maybe about 50 or 60 of those people were civilians. And it's a great article on a real big tragedy, to be honest. 50, maybe women and children were killed in this. Uh, but they had not necessarily investigated the crime. They were sort of hiding it to an extent. Uh, People within the U.S. military and so on. But uh, yeah, it's a very controversial thing. And then the coalition forces basically bulldozed the blast site. Uh, Basically, quote, the New York Times stated, quote, civilian observers who came to the area of the strike the next day described finding piles of dead women and children. In the days following the bombing, coalition forces overran the site, which is quickly bulldozed. I mean, they've they've since uh, apologized. Certainly an apology is not enough. There will likely be a Senate investigation into this. I mean, it's it's unacceptable, first and foremost, to have any civilian casualties. And the military admits this. I mean, it is inevitable that civilians will be killed in operations. But when you try to cover it up, I mean, it's a crime. I mean, full stop. And so uh, there will be investigations in this. I imagine we will see uh, prosecutions come out of it. Uh, But yeah, again, in a very important story, we'll have the link to the New York Times reporting to it uh, in the episode description if you want to learn more. Yeah, it's a a very sad thing, but it's, it's a really good editorial. And I think this quote stands out to me the most. Quote, but the Air Force lawyer, Lieutenant Colonel Dean W. Corsack, believed he had witnessed possible war crimes and repeatedly pressed his leadership and Air Force criminal investigators to act. When they did not, he alerted the Defense Department's independent inspector general. Two years after the strike, seeing no evidence that the watchdog agency was taking action, Colonel Corsack emailed the Senate Armed Services Committee, telling its staff that he had top secret material to discuss and adding, quote, Within quote, I am putting myself at great risk of military retaliation for sending this. Senior ranking U.S. military officials intentionally and systematically circumvented a deliberate strike process, he wrote in the email. Uh, yeah, yeah, very controversial, very something that we should be aware of when we're looking at, you know, our national security and how our military operates sometimes. Uh, Just kind of an interesting anecdote that I'll just add here. I was at a a talk uh, at the law school a couple days ago, and they had a general general who led NATO forces uh, in Afghanistan and with his JAG, 
um, with his judge advocate advisor, who was his senior legal advisor, a military legal advisor on the ground in Afghanistan. And they had a very candid conversation about basically the process of getting advice on some determinations when it comes to strikes and stuff. And it's very interesting to see. I mean, I'm not sure their dynamic seemed very strong that the the general always looked to his legal advisor and abided by it. But again, you, n- you never know. I mean, it's very hard in, the t- in, in warfare to to abide by these processes, but these processes are necessary to ensure that we abide by international law and maintain our own values. Because I mean, it's it's we we can't have the United States not only going into other countries and engaging in, in warfare, but also killing civilians um, and then trying to cover it up. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I think we should probably preview our episode coming out on Monday, though. Yeah, we have a great episode with General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, He's been on the podcast before. We did a great uh, sort of January 2021 interview with him where he talked about leading JSOC, killing this Al-Qaeda in Iraq leader, Al-Zarqawi, and more on leadership. Uh, This episode specifically focuses on his new book, Risk, A User's Guide. And we take the principles of risk risk management and responding to risk that he outlines in the book and we apply it to the case of Afghanistan, the drawdown in Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, and we apply it to his service as well in Afghanistan. And we have a very candid, honest conversation uh, with the general. And he's always great. We really appreciated him coming on. Absolutely. I I very much enjoyed uh, that conversation. Uh, everyone could use a bit of advice when it comes to risk. It's not just for those who are in, in government or in the military. If you're in business, if you're students, everyone faces risk in their lives. And so uh, I, I enjoyed reading the book. It's a great handbook. Um, some interesting uh, experiences that he shares from his you know personal life and his professional life um, that are um, fun to read about. Uh, and so uh, that's it for this week's edition of What in the World. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, to the podcast and follow everything uh, on social media at Burnbag Pod. As always, we'll see you next time.